Have you ever been in a church or heard of a church where there were people or groups of people that just couldn't get along? I think we've all heard stories of how choosing the color of the church carpet caused the church split. I see some of you nodding very vigorously. Maybe you've even known of a church like that. I don't think I've known of one specifically. And maybe it seems like a far-fetched example of, of something that could happen within a church body. But I think there are plenty of other examples that we can think of that cause conflict and strife among individuals in a church body or groups of people pitted against each other within the church body. Perhaps the conflict arises out of one person's desire to attain some sort of status in the church. Maybe it's to lead a certain committee or or to lead a certain ministry or to be responsible for a certain area of ministry within the church. And that person has that goal and they're working toward that goal. And just when it seems like they're going to be the one to, to get that position, well, it's given to somebody else. And so there's bitterness and envy at the failure of attaining that, that goal, that position of status within a church. And it causes strife and friction between the two people. I've thought about this example even uh, recently. I've been reading a biography of Charles Spurgeon. And as he uh, became very noteworthy in London during his early days of preaching, it's actually quite unbelievable. He became a, he became a pastor at the age of 16 and took uh, the pastor of New Park Street uh, Church where he would spend many, many years. He took that position at the age of 19 and there were many who observed him and thought ill of him simply because of his age and held the notoriety that he had gained against him and thought surely there's something that he's doing wrong in order to, to become so famous and have such a following as he preached the word of God. And I imagine that some, if not much, of that criticism was aimed at him due to the fact that people were jealous of that popularity, wanting that popularity for themselves, and felt like he was taking something away from them. And so they sought to kind of knock him down a peg or two in the eyes of, of his church and the city and, and country around him. Maybe another example of, of conflict within the church, maybe not even known to the whole church, but perhaps there's someone that doesn't feel as appreciated and loved as maybe they would like to be. And they feel like they're on the outside. And even that might lead to, to bitterness and envy as they look around them and, and perceive themselves to be an outsider looking in. How about this? Have you known of a family or even been part of a family where members of that family don't always get along? It's a pretty dumb question, right? I think we can all answer yes, at least uh, at some point in time in that. This could be between a, a husband and a wife experiencing conflict as a result of unrealized expectations. A husband expecting his wife to do and be certain things. And when she's not, they butt heads, there's conflict. Or a wife, on the other hand, having expectations of her husband. And when he doesn't measure up to that, it can lead to conflict and strife within that family. 
Or maybe there's conflict between parents and a child. Maybe the parents are are so overbearing that there's conflict between the two. Or maybe the child doesn't receive the instruction and discipline in a loving way. And so they butt heads with their parents. They fail to receive that, that godly instruction from their parents. Or maybe think of a work environment where coworkers experience conflict and fail to get along with one another. Again, maybe similar to a church uh, body life, maybe one employee thinks that he deserves a promotion or deserves credit for, for something that has been done, but somebody else receives most of the credit. And so again, there's, there's often an attempt to undermine that other person, wanting, wanting everybody to know how they have failed, the things that they do wrong, bringing that to, to an employer's attention, trying to raise themselves up. All a form of, of conflict and quarreling and fighting. Sometimes it's, it's seen by all those around. Maybe in a church it's seen by the entire church. Everybody knows that those two people don't get along. Or maybe sometimes it's hidden. Or nobody knows but the, the two people involved, or maybe, maybe not even both of them are aware of it. But there's, there's conflict and there's strife. If any of these examples uh, describe you, I believe that the message that we have from God's Word today is for you. And by God's grace, it will do its work in our hearts this morning to change, to root out the source of that conflict within. So as we walk through the text uh, today, we're going to see, first of all, and I think this is printed um, in the bulletin, we're going to see, first of all, the source of conflict, the source of interpersonal or relational conflict. What is the source of that conflict? And then we're going to see the evidence of that source as it works itself out. James is going to prove that what he calls the source really is the source and that all conflict comes from that source. And then while our text today doesn't explicitly give us a remedy in, in, a, in the section that we're going to look at this morning, I don't want, to, I don't want us to leave uh, this morning without looking at that. We'll get into more of it next week. But I want to touch on it and even preview what we're going to see and also provide hope for those of us in conflict or near to conflict that we might have hope in the time of our need. So first of all, let's look and find out what is the source of conflict. Well, the Christians to whom uh, James was writing in this book were not the peacemakers experiencing a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace, as he describes back in chapter 3, verse 18, a verse we looked at last week. So while our current section begins a new chapter... It clearly, clearly James is continuing the thought from the previous chapter. He's just talked about the need to make peace. Josh talked a little bit last week about being a peacemaker. Because of the lack of peacemaking among this church, among these Christians, among these followers of Christ, James seeks to confront head-on the conflict by asking a probing question regarding the conflict that they're experiencing. What is the probing question? We just read it. Let's look at it again. James 4, verse 1. 
he asked this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He doesn't waste any time. He gets right to the point and asks a very direct, probing question. So while James has exhorted his readers to seek peace, to pursue peace, they're obviously not pursuing it. They're not seeking peace. And there's no, there seems to be no doubt that the church and, church and churches to whom he is writing, in them there were factions that were threatening to tear apart those, those bodies or that body, ultimately the body of Christ, and bring reproach to the name of Christ because of those factions. So James doesn't waste any time in getting right to the point, getting right to the source of their conflict. And it's obscured a bit in the, in the translation that I'm reading from, but James really isn't simply asking what causes conflicts, although that's the translation here. Literally, it's, he's asking, from where do conflicts come from? From where do fights come from? Now, it may be a little bit of semantics here, but I think even in, even in understanding the, the literal translation, we get a little bit, we see past just the, the, the cause to actually the source, the root. What is the root? Because, you know, see, a cause can, you know, two or three things can combine together and cause something to happen. But James wants us to see the root. What is it that this conflict grows from? Where is this, where is this conflict and strife coming out of? And seeing that, we will be able to more effectively, and James wants us to more, more effectively get at that root and kill that root before it has time to blossom into conflict. He says that these quarrels and fights were among you. He talks about them being among the church, within the church. These weren't just conflicts between the church and the world. Sometimes that kind of conflict is even necessary as we defend, as we defend the glory of God before those around us. But these were conflicts between members within the body of Christ. And this is a serious issue because it represents a threat to the glory of God as it is portrayed to the world around us. And even as it, as, as it is portrayed within our body. When we see conflict, when the world around us sees conflict within the church, what are they supposed to believe about Christ? Didn't Christ come to make us all one together in Him? Didn't He come to make us united together in the body of Christ? What does the presence of conflict within the body of Christ say to those of us in the body of Christ? And what does it say to the world around us as they observe us? That's why this is such a serious issue. And so we cannot and must not ignore the quarrels and fights. We can't ignore the conflict. And the teaching of the entire New Testament, I've hinted to this already, it really drives us to see that we must live in harmony with each other as followers of Christ. It's not an option. It's not an option that, you know, if you don't get along with that person well, you know, just kind of ignore them, stay away from them, and everything will be fine. Just don't get in their face about it, and you guys can get along. That's not, the, that's not the, what the New Testament teaches us. I want to look at a few verses, and I want you guys to turn... Uh, to them as I read them because I want, I want our eyes to see them 
Turn to Romans chapter 12. I want us to see the way that that the Holy Spirit, through the writing of the New Testament, what is His goal for us? How does He want us to live together as members of the body of Christ? We could go to all kinds of passages to see this. I've chosen about five of them that I want us to look at. And I want the weight of these exhortations to fall on us, to realize the, the obligation we have to live in fellowship with one another. Romans 12, look at verse 10. It says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Down to verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Paul writes there, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. So there he even makes a a differentiation between how we relate to people in general. We should do good to everyone. But then even more specifically, we should do good especially to those who are of the the household of faith, especially to those who were also bought with the blood of Jesus. Turn over a few pages to Ephesians 4. Verse 1, Paul says, I urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The words there, unity and peace. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 32, a well-known verse, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We're going to come back to this verse uh, toward the end of the message this morning and see a, a powerful truth that it contains to help us in this area. And then lastly, turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. I know it's a lot of turning, but I want us to, I want us to see what the Word of God actually says. First Thessalonians 5, verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And we could go on and on, reading verse after verse, where the New Testament writers, under inspiration of the Spirit, press upon us to love one another, to serve one another, to treat one another with humility, and graciousness, forgiving each other. So if this description of life in the church, according to the New Testament, is our goal, if that's the ideal, that we live in perfect harmony with one another, we're treating one another with with love, then why does our experience so often fall short of that? Why does that happen? This is an important question to ask. This is the question that James is asking in chapter 4, verse 1. 
It's one that must be asked if we are to seriously pursue the teaching of the New Testament and its instruction regarding our relationships within the body of Christ. We've got to get to that root. We've got to get to the source of conflict. Whatever conflict we're experiencing right now, and I don't know what it's like for each person here, but if we're going to get to the source of that conflict, we must ask ourselves the question and consider the question that James asks these people. So again, he asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And by the way, these are, these are strong terms that he uses. I don't have time to, to really unpack it, but these, these are strong terms. These aren't just, he's not just talking about minor disagreements. I mean, he's talking about war, basically. These people are in battle. It's a strong conflict. So that is a probing question that we have to consider. We must consider. And James goes on to answer this. And it's a sobering answer. If we were to ask today, if I were to ask you, and if I were to ask myself, what is the source of the conflicts that we have with one another? We would probably be very quick to point to the other guy. He did that. He treated me that way. He said that to me. He didn't say that to me. We would be very quick to direct the attention onto the other person, something that they did. You know, we're just responding to, to the attitude that they treated me with. Right? Isn't that our natural response? Well, with that mindset, we'll be sobered by the answer that James gives to his own question. James does not leave any room for us to pass the buck, to shift the blame, to dismiss our responsibility as the source of conflicts. Look at what he says. Look at the answer to his question. The second half of verse 1. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You know, when we are in the midst of a conflict, we are so concerned about winning the battle, defeating that other person, making sure that we're right and everybody knows that we're right and that we won. We often miss seeing that conflict from God's perspective. We fail to see what He sees when He sees two members of the body of Christ in conflict, at war with one another. In order to make peace, in order to be a peacemaker, as we saw last week, we cannot simply agree to be civil with one another while there is underlying conflict still present. We must seek, to seek the root of that conflict and remove it in order to please God. We can't just agree to disagree and never speak with one another as a means of making peace. It doesn't work. It doesn't please God. So what is the, the source of the problem here? Well, the key word I want us to focus on is the word passions. This is the source of our conflict. It is our passions within us. This word refers to our selfish desires that drive our thinking and behavior. The location of the war, as James says, is within us. 
literally within our members. These are the desires that consume us. Even to the point of ignoring, even to the point that ignoring the desires of others and insisting we get our own way. We need our desires met. Whatever it takes to fulfill those desires, whatever effect it has on others, I don't care. I'm going to pursue my own desires. That's what he's talking about when he talks about passions. The passions at war within us. Again, I want us to see that this is not just the opinion of James. This is not an original thought with James. This idea of our own passions being at war, at battle within us. The entire Bible reveals that sinful passions are at war within us. Let me briefly explain how this works. At the fall, way back in Genesis chapter 3, at the fall, when Adam sinned, all of us sinned in Adam. When Adam sinned, all of us became infected by sin. We became sinners in the fall. We are now totally infected by sin. We are slaves to sin. We are bound to our sin. And according to the teaching of scriptures, although when we come to Christ in salvation, having faith in Him, trusting in Him to forgive us of our sins, He does that. He does forgive our sins. Absolutely, 100%. When we come to Christ trusting in His work in our behalf, we are absolutely forgiven of that sin. But we still have that sin nature within us. We still possess that old man. And it's constantly in battle with the new man, the new nature that's created in us in that moment of faith by the, by the Spirit. So although we are a new creation, we have been created new by God's Spirit. We have now power to overcome sin by His Spirit. We still are in battle with that old, old sin nature. Again, this isn't just James's opinion. Let me read a couple verses. Don't, don't worry about turning there. Let me read these, but listen carefully. Paul writes in Romans 7, verse 23. We'll see this again uh, later, but you'll remember the context. James, or Paul is lamenting the fact that the things that he wants to do and should do, he doesn't do. The things that he shouldn't do, he does. You remember that? Well, in the midst of that section, he writes this, verse 23, But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Similar terminology used by Paul as James. This war going on within our members. 1 Peter 2, verse 11, again, a very parallel passage to what we're reading now. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. And again, we could go on and on looking at verses which talk about this battle and the presence of our sin nature still indwelling us in battle with our new man. And our, our sanctification is a progressive thing. That is, it doesn't happen all at once. It happens over time. And oftentimes there's setbacks and there's steps forward. And there's another step back and there's a step forward. It's a process by which we are continuing to yield to the power of the Spirit to overcome our sin. 
But the good news, and we'll see this in a few minutes, the good news is that God's work of saving grace in us has given us the ability to overcome that old man. It's given us the ability to overcome the passions of our flesh warring in our members. We're not, we're not to be left hopeless that we're just going to fight this battle the rest of our life. We must remember that that battle is real. It is happening. But we have the power through the Spirit to overcome that. We're not in bondage to that sin anymore. That sin, those passions which lead to conflict. So when we're in the midst of conflict, we cannot excuse that conflict by saying, well, it's just my old man. I I can't do anything about it. You know, I'm still indwelt by sin. No. By God's saving grace, we have the ability through the Spirit to overcome that. And this won't be a one-time victory and after that we will, we will experience no battle within us anymore. That's not the way it works either. It will be a continuing, continuing battle. But we can have and will have as we, as we continue to look to Christ and His Spirit, we will continue to have victory over those sinful passions within us. We'll talk about that again a little bit toward the end. So James asks a probing question. What What causes the conflict? And then he gives us a sober answer. Instead of pointing to that person and that person and that person that's done you wrong, he points the finger directly at each one of us, into our hearts. So what is the evidence of these sinful passions at war within us? James will answer this question in the next two verses. He will explain how these sinful passions work within us. How is it that they cause conflict? How is it that they are the source of the quarrels and fighting that we experience? And so in case we don't really believe him that I'm really not the cause of the conflict. It's not really coming from within my own heart. James is going to attempt to prove that fact to us by pointing out what happens in our hearts. And I want to say a brief word uh, regarding the way these verses are translated right here, especially verse 2, because some of you may have in your translation slightly different wording. And I don't want us to be confused if you're looking at it and thinking, well, that's not what my, that's not what my translation says. So I just want to spend just a minute explaining why I believe that the one that I just read, the ESV, is, I think, the best translation, the best way to understand. Again, I, don't, I mean, the, the point's not going to be obscure to the point that it's, you, know, you have to throw out another translation. But I just want to make sure we're clear as to why I read it the way I read it and the way it's translated here in case uh, there might be some with, with a different wording. And the question really is, where, where does the murder go? Does it belong with the first phrase? Or does it belong with the second phrase? So if you look at it again, the way I read it, it says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Some of you may have in your translation something along the lines of, You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Again, the point is pretty much the same. But I think we can see a very clear parallel, uh, parallel statement in what James is saying. And part of the way we come to the conclusion is to look at the the broader context of what he is writing. 
How does this statement fit into everything else he is saying? And how best can we understand his point here? So in this verse, as I say, James follows a simple formula to make his point about this, the evidence of the sinful passions within us. And the formula is this, and he does it twice. There's an internal attitude. There is a lack of receiving something. And then there's an external action. So look at verse 2. We have the internal attitude you desire. We have a lack of receiving you do not have. And then we have an external action so you murder. Then we go back and start over. An internal attitude you covet. A lack of receiving you cannot obtain. And an external action you fight and quarrel. So I think the best way to understand this is just exactly like that. Parallel statements. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So having seen how these two statements are parallel, seeing how best to understand them, now let's take a look and see that these parallel phrases take a look at these parallel phrases and we'll see that external conflict is in fact the outworking of our internal sinful passions while we may think that there is nothing wrong with desiring to have something maybe you've thought that as we've talked about these passions well what's wrong with me desiring to have something I'm not saying and James isn't saying that there's anything wrong with our desiring to have something the problem is, when, our, when the lack of receiving the thing that we desire leads to murder and leads to fighting and quarreling, there's probably something wrong with the thing that we're desiring. When it's, when it's been elevated to such a point in our own thinking that if we don't get it, we're going to murder and we're going to fight and we're going to quarrel, there's something wrong with that passion, that desire within us. Now, having identified the proper place of where we put murder in, in the verse, I think we need to talk about what is James talking about when he says, you murder. It sounds like quite, quite an accusation that James makes. And again, here, commentators vary on their interpretation of what James is communicating, what he is accusing these people of when he tells them that you murder. Some commentators have... Uh, suggested that perhaps James is referring to actual murder. That the people in those churches were actually killing other people. And they give us evidence of that, that many of the Jewish people of that day could have been and, and were part of the religious zealot movement. And they were, they, you know, killing the opposition was something that they were not afraid to do. Well, that possibly is the case. I don't think that James would pass over it so quickly and barely bring it up if these people were killing, actually killing other people, such a violation of, of God's commands. If members of the church were actually killing people, I don't think James would just mention in passing that you murder because you didn't receive something. I think he would give it a lot more attention if that was a real problem within that church. So I don't think that's the best interpretation of what he means when he accuses them of murdering. Another possible interpretation is that James has in mind what Jesus spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember that Jesus really expanded our understanding of 
what God's command regarding murder was by saying that even the internal attitudes behind murder, such as anger, hatred, even envy toward a person, that's just as, that's, that's just as much murder as actually killing someone. Our being angry with someone is just as much a violation of God's law as actually killing that person. So maybe James has that in mind, what Jesus spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think that's more along the line of what he's talking about. But I think the best answer is found really somewhere kind of in between that. I think James is warning his readers here and us that if conflicts continue to escalate, the, the, the end ultimately is murder. When conflict escalates to a certain point, the physical act of murder is the end to intense conflict. And so he warns them about that end while also reminding his readers that even their heart attitudes are tantamount to murder. One commentator, I think, says it very well. He said this, James's readers are not yet killing each other, but fightings and wars are already in evidence among them. And if covetous zeal goes unrestrained, the danger of actual violence is real. So I don't think James is addressing actual killing within the body of Christ. I think he is warning them how dangerous conflict can be and will be if left unchecked. So after attributing our conflict to a failure to receive the desires of our hearts here in verse 2, James goes on to explain why it is that we don't receive the desires of the desires of those sinful passions. Why is it that we don't receive them? Well, look what he says. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And as I read those verses, I think back to a verse way back at the beginning of James. You remember James 1 verse 5? He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him so how could it be when we have such a promise of God that he gives generously why is it that we don't ask for him to give us our desires well again I think this is proof that the desires James is talking about are sinful desires keep in mind sinful passions within us lead us to become so consumed with pursuing those desires at all cost. The last thing we're looking to do in the pursuit of those desires is to look to God. Whether it's just such a pursuit of our own sinful passions that we forget about God, or if we realize that in the pursuit of our sinful passions, it really isn't going to do a whole lot of good to ask God for something that we know He's not going to give us, that we know doesn't please Him. And so we don't receive... Because we don't ask. But then James goes on in verse 3 to say we sometimes do ask. Maybe we do ask God for the desire of our heart. But we don't receive because we only want to spend it on our passions. We ask wrongly. The word here even says that we will spend wastefully on our sinful passions. An idea that calls to mind the the story of the prodigal son who did just that 
with his portion of the inheritance. He went out and just wasted it. He spent it on, the, on fulfilling his own passions and desires. Now while I don't think that James here is focusing our attention on prayer per se, I do want to make a couple comments to us that I think will be helpful as we pray. As we go to the Lord asking Him for things that we desire. When we pray, are we praying for things that are simply the desires of our heart or the desires of our sinful passions? Are we just praying, trying to get something from God that we want for ourselves? Or are we praying for the glory of God to be seen through His working in us and trusting that He knows best what we need and that He will give us exactly what we need and He will hold back from us that which we cannot have because we will spend it wastefully on our own passions. When we pray, do we trust God to answer that prayer according to His wisdom, not according to our own desire? So while I don't think that James has prayer in mind specifically here, I don't think he's teaching them about prayer, I do think there are a couple lessons that we can learn about our approach to God in prayer. Even when we don't receive something, maybe, maybe that's God's way of telling us that what it is we're asking for, we don't really need. And it's just something that we want to pile on to our own sinful desires within our heart. Remember, we are totally infected by sin. Therefore, many times even our prayers are infected by the heart of sin within us. So to wrap this point up, we have a sobering reminder here that there are sinful passions battling within us, even infecting our prayers. What we need is a remedy for that conflict that we are in, and we need a remedy for the sinful passions that are the root of that conflict. So while I said at the beginning, our text this morning, verses 1 through 3, does not deal, does not really give us a remedy for this. I don't want us to leave without at least taking a glimpse of what's coming up in the next section and also what we already know through the teaching of of God's entire word about the remedy for the sinful passions within us, the root of our conflict. We're going to see next week that one vital piece of this remedy for conflict is humility. Humbling ourselves, bowing before God, recognizing our weak and helpless state before Him. It's when we have this attitude that God comes to us and changes our hearts. And that's the means of overcoming the sinful passions. God coming in and continuing to change and renew our hearts. It's done once at the moment of salvation. We are regenerated. We are giving a new heart. But as I said, we still battle that indwelling sin. We need that renewal over and over again. And it's when we come humbly before God seeking that renewal that His Spirit comes and provides it for us. That's the means of overcoming the sinful passions that lead to conflict. Our sinful passions in conflict essentially become idols in our hearts to which we bow and give allegiance. We serve those desires. Our pursuit is the fulfillment of those desires. Those desires are set up as idols above God. We worship those desires 
and pursue them instead of pursuing God in Christ. If we're going to address the root cause of our conflict, we're going to need to address the heart. And there's only one thing that is able to fix the problem of the heart. We must throw ourselves upon the grace of God and seek for Him to transform us on the inside. And one way that God transforms us is through the consistent application of the gospel to our lives. Reminding ourselves of the facts of what God has done in the gospel for us. This is how Paul addressed the realization that he had this battle within him. Turn, if you would, to Romans 7. I read from this section earlier, and I want us to look at it a little more right now. We won't read the whole section. But I want us to look beginning in verse 22. And I want us to see how Paul answers his own problem. The problem of this battle within. How does he address it? As I said earlier, this, the context is he's, he's doing the things he doesn't want to do. He's not doing the things that he should be doing. Look at what he says in verse 22. He says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And look at, the, look at what it drives him to. He writes in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. And maybe that's, that's even where we are right now. Seeing this internal battle going on within us and how we so often pursue our own sinful passions that we're left with this. We basically throw our hands up and say, wretched man that I am, what hope is there for me? But look at how Paul begins chapter 8. And again, there's no, the chapter divisions were not intended by Paul. He's continuing the thought Look at what he reminds himself of. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Paul points himself and he points us in the moment of battle, in the moment of despair at the fact that we are losing the battle to our flesh. He points us not to within ourselves even more and trying harder. He points us to what Jesus did for us on the cross. He put to death sin so that we are now alive in the Spirit, able to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. That's just one example that we see in the Bible of an application and an understanding of what God did in the Gospel for us. How that overcomes our own despair at our sinful state. We must understand that the only hope we have for 
experiencing change within our heart is for the Holy Spirit to change us. And looking at the gospel reminds us that God sent His Son to die for us. And His Son having done that, He has now sent the Spirit to us and in us to empower and enable us. If all we do is just, like I just said, looking in ourselves and really just trying harder, trying to overcome our sin, just trying even harder, that's just going to lead to more failure and more frustration. We must remember that the the process of being changed by God is not something that just takes place overnight and we'll never struggle with indwelling sin again. We'll never have conflict again because that root of indwelling sin has been taken care of. It doesn't happen overnight. It is an ongoing process that will take an extended period of time and will cause us to daily humble ourselves before God for renewed strength in that battle. I came across recently a very famous quote by by John Newton. John Newton is the man that wrote the words to Amazing Grace. He has this famous quote, you've probably heard it, and I think it sums up what our attitude should be as we look at what God has done for us. He says this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. Yet I am not what I once was, and by the grace of God I am what I am. What a reminder to us that we've got a long way to go. None of us are where we should be right now. And none of us are where we want to be right now. But because of God's grace, those of us who are in Christ, we are not where we were. And we can overcome sin by the power of the Spirit within us. Another important point I want us to make as we close is, I want us to remember that there are often at least two parties involved in a conflict. Sometimes more. But there's typically at least two, unless you're schizophrenic and you're you know, battling with your other personality or whatever, whatever the proper uh, psychological disorder would be. There's often two parties involved in a conflict. What do you do when you're pursuing forgiveness, when you're pursuing the, the rooting out of the sinful passions within you, seeking to end a conflict, and that other party isn't doing the same thing. What do you do in that situation? Well, we should seek restoration with those that we are in conflict with. Ultimately, we're only responsible for how we respond and how we behave. But also there's good news because the gospel enables us to pursue uh, or to persevere even when that other person doesn't receive our attempts at restoration, even when they're attempting to escalate the conflict, there's still instruction and still power in applying the gospel in that situation. I read Ephesians 4.32 earlier. Let me read it again. We know this verse well, but let me just read it again. Paul writes there, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. On what basis? As God in Christ forgave you. Paul also writes Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 
bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So we are able to forgive those who have wronged us. Maybe even while they're still wronging us. We are able to forgive them because we ourselves have been forgiven when we wronged God, when we sinned against Him. Again, there's power, transforming power in the gospel. Remembering the facts of the gospel, what God has done for us. God has forgiven us for our sin. And because of that, we are able to forgive others who wrong us. One means of grace that we have, Josh alluded to it in his announcements, one means of grace is our relationships that we have with each other in small groups. For those who are in small groups, you probably will agree with me that it has been exciting to see how each group, or at least my group, is this way. We're growing closer to one another, and, and I, I think we're able to, to uh, relate to one another and even hold each other accountable where we, where we see these sinful passions even coming to the surface, exhibiting themselves in, in the various ways that they exhibit themselves, not just conflict. But through those relationships, we, we can be encouraged by the gospel. One of the things that, that we try to do in, in our small group on a regular basis is do just what I did here and apply the gospel to whatever truth we're learning from God's word. How does the gospel help us do what we're supposed to do? And the means of, of meeting together as, as small groups, holding each other accountable, loving each other, trying to put into practice what I read earlier, the description of the body of Christ serving each other. We can hold each other accountable in this journey that we are on toward overcoming our sinful passions. I think it's worth mentioning that we really can't do this by ourselves. We can't accomplish victory even, even though the Spirit is the one who ultimately accomplishes it. I realize that. But we, again, we're infected by sin. We need one another to help us in that process. We need, I need for somebody to point me to the gospel. And so we have that privilege again this week. And I would encourage uh, the small groups to think even of specific areas. Maybe specific areas of conflict or ways that our sinful passions tend to lead us into sin. And how we can overcome those through the means of the gospel. Let's serve each other by holding each other accountable. Let's serve each other, even in the, the venue of small groups, by reminding our, each other of the facts of the gospel. And even where appropriate and necessary, confronting conflict as it, as it manifests itself. And trying to get to the root of that. Because as we've seen, conflict in the church is a disgrace to the glory of God. It diminishes the glory of God. Not that God's glory can be diminished, but it's diminished in the eyes of those who are watching. So I would encourage us, and I hope and pray, that God would continue to do that work of transformation in our lives individually, in our lives as small groups, and in our lives corporately as a body of Christ 
that we would continue to be transformed by the power of God through the working of His Spirit, continuing to look to Christ and what He has accomplished for us at the cross in the Gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word and I thank You for the power to accomplish it that is found outside of us. If it were left up to me to perfectly accomplish your will for me, I would be hopeless. I need your spirit to enable me. We as a church need your spirit to enable us to overcome our sinful passions. It is a sobering reality to to see that the real problem in our conflict is within us. Lord, realizing that is the first step to overcoming it. And we look to you, humble ourselves before you, seeking that you would transform our hearts, that we would be changed by your word, that as we apply the gospel to our hearts, we would be empowered to overcome these sinful passions. And I praise you for how you will use your word. I look forward to seeing how your word transforms us. And we will praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen.